My name is Debbie Evans and I'm the nursing correspondent for UK Column. And as you know, I do some amazing interviews with some amazing people. And today I'm going to bring you someone, a wonderful lady who no one's heard of, but I've been speaking to for very many months over Zoom and over the phone. One of our very own UK Column viewers and listeners who contacted me with regards to a lot of a lot of grave concerns they had with regards to the MHRA and the vaccines. But this person has been in the shadows for a very long time, so this is an exclusive. And today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Cheryl Granger. Now, Cheryl is a training consultant. She's a self-employed training consultant for pharmaceutical industry. And she's been doing a huge amount of work behind the scenes. And we're going to reveal some of that today to our viewers. And so without further ado, welcome, Cheryl. And thank you so much for agreeing to come out of the shadows and for everyone to see all the hard work that you've been doing with what we're going to ultimately be discussing, which is this incredible Freedom of Information Act uh, request that you have put in with Philip Highland and the Heart Group to get all the data on the AstraZeneca COVID-19 injections, but we're going to come to that, I know, at the end. But welcome, Cheryl, and tell us, how did we get to where we are today? Hi, thanks very much for that, Debbie. Um, well, it's taken many years, <laughs> too, too many years to actually uh, admit to. But uh, I started off, obviously, in school like everybody else, but I had a bent, bent towards science and biology was my subject. But I couldn't think for the life of me what I was going to do with that. So I went off and did a degree. It was called Industrial Technology and Management. It was a business studies type of degree that was supposed to make you understand every bit of industry, which was quite useful once I got into the pharmaceutical industry. Um, but since I was um, 25-ish, I have worked for pharmaceuticals. So I was a medical representative to start off with. And for those who don't know what that is, those are the people you see carrying a bag into the um, surgeries around the country, um, persuading doctors to prescribe. So you're not taking orders, you're persuading doctors to prescribe, whether it be in general practice or in hospitals. Um, and in that role, I actually sold hydroxychloroquine. So I actually sell Plaquenil for rheumatoid arthritis. So I knew a little bit about that and was a bit confused about what they were telling us over the last few years. Um, eventually, I moved into training and development uh, positions and then I moved into consultancy. Um, and eventually, I became self-employed and set up my own uh, training company. Um, so I did lots of different types of training to start off with. And then when the kids came along, I concentrated more on the ABPI medical reps examination. Now, the ABPI is the Association of British Pharmaceutical Industries. Um, and every medical representative has to pass this exam, um, which is a full day's worth of, of papers, um, to actually uh, keep their employment. And the things that I train um, the medical reps in are things like anatomy and physiology, diseases and the treatments. But on top of that, the NHS and the ABPI's own code of practice for how the pharmaceutical industry has to behave. Um, I also uh, do diseases and immunology. And um, the final part of the exam is looking at how you develop a medicine. And that goes through all the aspects of um, medical developments, including clinical trials and how they're run, um, statistics in medicine, pharmacovigilance, and then it finally finishes on pharmacology. Um, so that's the way that drugs work. So there's a lot of things that I keep covering and have been doing for years that led me to understand what was or wasn't happening over the last few years. Um, and that's why right from the start, from March 2020, I was wondering what on earth was going on. In February 2020, I went to stay with some friends in Dublin. Um, my friend had a very bad virus. He'd been through a, a four or five different antibiotics over several weeks trying to get him better and nothing touched it. Um, uh, obviously, it wouldn't because it was a viral infection. And um, I spent six days with them. He was still coughing away. Um, his wife hadn't got um, much of a, a, a problem. And by the time I came back from Dublin, I was fine. I hadn't 
uh, caught anything. So that made me start thinking about my immunity and um, what actually he got wrong with him. Um, in March 2020, I was still a governor of a local school and we were recruiting ahead. That was in the final week before we shut down. So we recruited Monday, Tuesday, and the school shut down on the Friday. And I was totally bamboozled by how everybody was behaving and how they kept washing hands and, and staying away from each other. And everybody was spaced out and very difficult to interview people when you're trying to get the whole school involved in interviewing these new candidates. So there was lots of things happening that made me, me start thinking. Um, and from that point, I just thought, well, everything I'm hearing is both illogical and unscientific. And so it makes you start delving deeper into what was happening. Um, trying to understand what this coronavirus was and um, eventually what the treatments um, were that they were advocating or that they were stopping you, you actually using. Um, so, of course, a lot of people have said that during lockdown, they had lots of times to get on the computer and start doing these investigative um, investigations into information that they wanted to find out more about. And I was one of them. Um, the first person I listened to was Dolores Carhill, Professor Carhill. Um, who went on about, um, I think it was about 12 genetic changes she um, was aware of with this new coronavirus that couldn't have come out naturally because things don't evolve that quickly. Um, and she also went on about the treatments um, that were available. So she was going on about zinc and hydroxychloroquine, which I understood because I'd sold it. Um, and then I got into Iva Cummings, um, who um, is an engineer um, by trade. Um, the interesting thing about him is he's kept Natrago trained, so he's a problem solver for industry. Um, I was kept Natrago trained, which is a problem solving and decision making course. And it's a very thorough investigation into what your problem is. So you do a situation analysis to make sure you understand the problem, because most people in industry are solving the wrong problem. They're not quite sure exactly what's wrong, and they keep going on solving the thing that isn't wrong. And you've got to make sure your problem's identified in the first place. Um, so I felt I had something in common with Ivor Cummings um, because I understood where he was coming from. And obviously he did a lot of um, very good videos and interviews to try and um, get some more information out about the situation. Um, there was then an interview with um, three experts on vitamin D that I listened to. And that's when I realised our vitamin D levels have to be right. Um, and that explained the situation in Italy and Japan. So in northern Italy, where there's a lot of um, elderly people, they had high death rates because of um, COVID. Um, these are all a lot of little old ladies who get dressed in black, don't go out, stay inside all the time, even though it might be sunny there. Um, and their vitamin D levels are known to be on the floor. Whereas compared with Japan, Japan has the oldest population of um, people in the world, and yet their vitamin D levels are very high, and they didn't have as many deaths as Italy. So it's all these things that you keep listening to and, and watching, and you, you're building up your picture as to <laughs> what actually is happening out there. I think um, it's fair to say, though, that, Cheryl, that you are extremely experienced. And I just want, I want other people to know that there are so many of our UK column viewers and listeners who work extremely hard and are experts in these areas. So we're very fortunate to have this pool of amazing knowledge within, within our audience. But I know that you've been working really hard with the Heart Group and you've also been working with Philip Highland. But very kindly and exclusively for us here at UK Column, you've, you've done the most amazing screen slides to show us with how we've actually got here because we've all forgotten haven't we we've forgotten a lot a lot of stuff on the way along along to where we are now take us back a little bit cheryl to where all this started in in your historical perspectives yeah okay so on on slide one there i'm talking about um by may 2020 covid19 was following the same patterns as any other respiratory viruses that we've had over the last 20 years but the thing that didn't make sense is sage phe public health england which has become um the nhs security agency that really does bother me that name because obviously it's pha uh, Public Health England um, with the biosecurity people and then track and trace has been added into there as if it's going to go on forever. 
So that is a very boring thing. So sage, PhD. And that very, quick, very quickly, just to interrupt there, just very quickly for anybody that's listening, that's the UK HSA, I think that we're referring to there, the U UK Health Security Agency, which is the merge of public health England. Um, so the CDC, the FDA, the EMA, MHRA, mainstream media, and all the regulatory bo bodies never actually go back historically and look at how things are normally. Um, you know, they, they denied to start off with that it was a seasonal virus that we were experiencing. Um, there's lots of things that um, they just um, said was completely different about this virus that weren't actually uh, true. So if we move on to the next um, slide, we have to go back to thalidomide. The thalidomide was the start of um, side effects of drugs being recognised. And unfortunately, then, obviously, there's no computerisation. It was all by word of mouth and doctors actually noticing things. And it was an Australian, Dr. McBride, who wrote in The Lancet um, and started talking about the impact on development. Having said that, the FDA in the US, they rejected thalidomide links um, because they'd seen um, nerve damage in the limbs. So they didn't take it. Um, but it was 10,000 babies that were affected and 50% of them had died uh, within a few months of birth, very sadly. Um, so um, thalidomide was eventually um, removed from the market, even though in 1958, um, it's, the manufacturers said it could be given with complete safety to pregnant women without adverse effects. And of course, the unfortunate thing was it was taken for morning sickness, which occurs in the first um, trimester, which is when the fetus is getting all its bits, forming all its limbs and what have you. Um, so very, very sad. Um, and because of thalidomide, it forced governments to start taking control of the marketing, the testing and the approval. And this was done through the 1968 medicines Act that came in. Um, but don't forget, thalidomide had had its license in 56 and we were only starting to sort things out for other drugs in 68. Um, through the medicines act that then had to be implemented. But what they, they stated was that drugs for humans could not be just approved on animal testing. And then drug trials had to provide evidence that they were safe for pregnant women. So those are the principles of um, the yeah, medicines act that this um, that could be applied to thalidomide. Um, so in 2003, so we fast forward quite some years, you get the Medicine Health um, Care Regulatory Agency which regulates medicines and medical devices and blood components for transfusion. And they're supposed to look after our safety, quality and efficacy um, of our medications and other products. And then in 2005, we got the Commission on Human uh, Medicines and it's the MHRA that operates our yellow card system on behalf of the um, CHM. Before you move on, I just want to also just slide in there very conveniently, as you mentioned, uh, the yellow card system and thalidomide in that we have featured it before on the column dame june rain who is the ceo of the mhra she delivered a lecture the um an homage to sir alistair breckenridge where she's exactly saying what you're saying um how the yellow card um system was born um all about thalidomide and in the very same lecture she then goes on to say that with covid19 this is where they were expecting 100,000 serious adverse reactions. They were actually expecting them. So if any, any, any of our viewers and listeners want to go to YouTube, that's the homage to Sir Alistair Breckenridge, um, Dame June Rain. So everything that Cheryl's just said there, um, Dame June Rain herself has said it. So, um, I mean, Spanish flu killed 50 million people worldwide. I was listening to... Um, a lecture the other day that was talking about um, it was probably bacterial pneumonia that killed most of these people in a time when you didn't have um, antibiotics. And one of the things you've got to look at is the elderly people who died in care homes who probably had bacterial pneumonias. They weren't given antibiotics in this day and age. They were stopped because it was a viral infection they were assumed to have. Um, but what this is um, slide is put up for is the number of deaths in the past where a medication has been stopped. Um, so with the swine flu um, pandemic and the vaccination of people with um, at that time, um, at 25 and eventually there were 53 deaths, it was stopped. Um, with the 2009 um, influenza A flu, uh, when Pandemrix uh, was developed and uh, started to be used, there were 47 fatalities and then it was stopped. 
and people like Professor Doshi of the BMJ, he said pandemics was removed from the market after the pandemic, but the number of reported events indicate a need for a stronger screening process for pandemic, uh, pandemic vaccinations in the future. So um, moving on, um, it always amazes me that people know so little about their bodies. And of course, at the moment, everybody's spouting forth as if they know everything about science and their bodies and viruses and all the rest. So let me just remind um, everybody that a virus is a very, very small thing. It's a thousandth the width of a hair. And it's basically a bit of nucleic acid, which might be DNA or RNA, um, that is wrapped up um, and then has some attachments, the spikes, that can actually attach it to a cell. So it attaches two cells and then it goes into the cells biochemistry and it's able to reproduce to provide its um, um, future viral particles from the biochemistry of that cell. It uses what's in the cell. So it's parasitical. It's a parasite. It goes in and it uses our cells to make more of itself. Um, and that's why it's difficult to treat viral infections, because it involves killing the cells, the host cells, your cells that it's gone into. Um, I found uh, Professor Bida Sadler, who's um, a European professor of immunology. Um, uh, he basically was called the vaccine pope uh, at one stage in his career. Um, and he gave a talk about how asymptomatic spread is not a problem. It's not something that we need to worry about. And that's because your cells get invaded by the viruses. That sets up inflammation. Symptoms start to develop because of that inflammation. And then you get so many cells reaching a viral load. And that leads to symptoms. And the symptoms you get at the right viral load are coughing and sneezing. And that's the means by which those symptoms expel the respiratory virus as an aerosol. And unless um, you get up to the right load that gives you the symptoms, you're not going to be able to get the viruses you've just created out of your body. Um, so asymptomatic spread, which was made into such a big thing and made the healthy stay away from work and lock themselves away, um, was not, in my opinion, something that we should have really worried about. It's always amazed me because you had... You had the ill people, you had the people who were coughing and spluttering who you didn't want to go near. You knew they were giving signals out that they were people to stay away from. Um, but what the um, pandemic did is it trained people to worry about everybody. You worried about the unhealthy and the healthy. You stayed away from everybody. Um, and that obviously has been a very um, disruptive thing that has led to a lot of problems now um, as we're recovering from lockdowns and what have you. Asymptomatic um, simply doesn't exist. It it doesn't. You know, this is what we have to be clear about here: is that it doesn't exist. It's it's, it's really crazy. as simple as that. And and what was interesting was a minute ago you were talking about parasites, and I know a lot of people that are watching this will be screaming, "Oh, but Debbie never talks about terrain theory, um, and and we need to talk about germ theory." And yes, we do, and yes, we will. But that's not what we're talking about today. And I realise that. It's of interest to a lot of people and it is a subject that we will, we will, I promise, come on to. However, something else that you mentioned just there, which was very interesting, was the word parasite. Because, of course, we know and you, of course, know because you've worked with hydroxychloroquine and the other one, ivermectin, that they're both antiparasitics. So, you know, this is all starting to make sense now, isn't it, Cheryl? Yeah. Um, and... Uh... The lecture I heard the other day when they were talking about bacterial pneumonia, apparently ivermectin is very good at tackling that as well. So it's not just an antiparasitic, it will help as an antibacterial as well. Um, I think it has quite a lot of modes of action. Um, so that is just in terms of wearing a mask. That is the pore size um, that I'm showing on this diagram um, of a, a, a hole um, in a cloth mask. And the little dot at the bottom is six times bigger than what a COVID um, virus would be. So there's no way that you're going to um, be able to, to trap um, the viruses um, and, you know, protect yourself by wearing a mask. That tiny, tiny little dot at the bottom of the screen, that's what we're referring to, because that's quite extraordinary. I think we just need to highlight that for people because it is it, tiny. Yeah. I mean, people have been very clever on Twitter and what have you, putting all these things up and, and showing 
people um you know and you look at the credentials and they know what they're talking about and it's it's just needs to be graphically shown to people yeah and they're doing themselves harm by keep wearing a mask and trapping everything that's coming out of them it comes out of us because we need to get rid of it we don't need to sit there with bacteria and fungi actually being trapped in a mask and, and being held on the face for eight hours the thing i didn't understand was when uh, we got to the 19th of march um, the Advisory Committee on Dangerous Pathogens actually declared that um, COVID-19 should no longer be classified as a high-consequence infectious disease. And that information was sent to the government, and I think it was on the 26th of March, um, they actually um, uh, locked us down. They, they gave um, reasons um, as to why they bumped it down, the classification at um, uh, reduced, and that was due to the mortality rates, which were low overall, um, but there was greater clinical awareness. And they said there was a specific and sensitive laboratory test, which obviously I want to query. Um, but um, the WHO still considers it to be a public health emergency of international concern. And that, again, is very worrying. Um, they stated that in October 22. Um, so it, when we go on to the testing, um, this is the wonderful PCR test. The test was based on SARS CoV 1. Uh, which came out in 2003, um, because we didn't have any available viral isolates to actually base it on. And it was this wonderful Professor Drosten who was being slated. Um, and he actually um, had a test protocol uh, published in Eurosurveillance, and it was accepted to be published within 24 hours without any peer review. Um, so in November 2020, 22 eminent scientists got together and did. Um, uh, pulled it all to pieces, had a look at it, and said that it was seriously flawed, the test, in 10 ways, which I've listed. Um, and this means um, that um, the test is inconclusive in terms of um, confirming that you've actually got an infection. Um, and obviously, the other thing that's uh, very worrying is that it's been used as the basis of uh, deaths and hospitalizations and number of cases, etc., but when you actually look at the false positive rate, which was given at 0.8%, um, and because we rolled it out to so many different people, I think the uh, testing trace lot spent 37 billion, didn't they? Um, the chance of being a positive case and then it being false was 89 to 94%. So just think about all the figures that we've had thrown at us. How accurate are any of those? Um, and that was all um, borne out by Kerry Mullis, who was the inventor of the PCR. Um, so one of the things I've ever always stated is never before have we tested the healthy to tell them they are positive for something they haven't got. And if they do get infected, then 99.97% will be fine. And um, 0.15, and it's less than that now, could die, but their average age will be 82.5 years. And right. you know, Cheryl, that takes me back to an interview that um, it's on on the, on the UK column. If you search the archives, um, I, I think I did an interview with Brian uh, about PCR, the whole PCR test and the genome beast. And for me, as a nurse, we would never to, to put a six-inch stick up somebody's nose is actually extremely invasive and it's dangerous, and it's not something that any one of us would do unless we would be trained to do it or overseen by an ENT yeah. consultant, it's that dangerous. So when I saw volunteers of people throwing swabs down throats and then up noses, it, none of it made sense, especially when we know that this whole drive, this whole PCR drive has been an absolute con in, in, many, in many ways. And I've always questioned, what are they extracting? And of course we know now genomic sequencing. And, and I think the important thing to highlight too is, you're absolutely right. And it's something that I've been saying for ages and people just, they kind of, I'm sure it's like propagating a seed in their head when we say it, but it's like, when did we ever test healthy people? You know, when yeah. the NHS is overwhelmed as it is, we've got 7 million currently on the waiting list and yet we're carrying on testing healthy people, not just for COVID now, but we're going to be testing them for all sorts of other things with regards to the PCR tests. We've never done this those, before, have we? Look at those people that queued up for hours to get a test at the beginning of all this, when they're all panicking. Might be. If you've got 
COVID, if you've got a flu, you're in bed. You can't get out of bed. <laughs> you've got symptoms. You feel ill. You're not going to be standing in the cold in a queue waiting for somebody to stick something up your nose. And then, you know, if you've got no symptoms, but they tell you've got it, what do you go and do? Sit next to the doctor and say, and he says, what's wrong with you? And he says, well, I've got a positive test. You know, there's nothing wrong with me. I haven't got any symptoms or anything. It just doesn't make sense. We've never done this before. No, but when we, I remember um, anybody that went to the doctor, and I mean, I did it with my own kids at times too, you know, hands up, I fess up. You go and you say, oh, your child is this or that or the other. And the doctor used to turn around and go, it's just a virus, go home. Uh, rest up, plenty of fluids, um, calpol, whatever, paracetamol, and you'll be fine in a few days. So it was never a big deal. We never, there was never a test because doctors would always say, we cannot give you antibiotics because this is a viral, in inverted commas, a viral infection, not bacterial. So you were just told common sense, go home and rest. And you're right, if you've got flu, my test for flu is if there's a 50 pound note, probably won't be too, in the new distant future we won't have notes and fiat currency however that's another debate but if there's a 50 pound note on the floor and you can't reach down to pick it up you've more than likely got flu because you're aching you're on the settee you are in bed you can't go anywhere you know what's what's gone where have we gone wrong what have we really forgotten this much people do talk a lot about themselves in terms of illness especially as my friends have got older and what have you, everybody's wanting to tell you what's wrong. They're looking for something to be wrong. Whereas, you know, there's a group of people who never want to be ill, so they don't actually think about it and dwell on it and what have you. So a lot of people are quite happy to go along with this, and I find that quite worrying. And if you look at um, the next slide, slide six, it actually um, gives you all the uh, data by age group of the infection survival rate, which probably we should look at first, um, and then obviously the fatality rate. Um, and at the moment, um, the fatality rate um, is basically um, 0.096%, and that's been registered in Hansard. So um, that's you know a very low fatality uh, rate. Um, and it doesn't vary as you go through um, the different countries that I've shown there in the middle. Um, it's very similar wherever you go. Um, and the um, graph on the right is just showing that kids, children, don't have a problem with this. Okay, So I'm saying all this because it was pushed right from the start that um, COVID-19 was novel and deadly. Well, in terms of it being novel, it actually is 80% the same as other coronaviruses. And that's why a lot of people's immunity system recognised it. I mean, we're giving people a spike to get them to have immunity to, to this condition. And a spike's 10 to 15% of a coronavirus. We're talking about something that your body recognises because it's 80% the same as other coronaviruses that we come across quite commonly. So I don't believe it's novel and I don't believe that it's, it's deadly, um, even the elderly. I mean, if you're looking at um, 70 um, plus, um, that includes people in care homes. It's only 5% of, of people who have a chance of dying. Um, the majority, 95%, are going to be fine. You know, when you see it like that, it, it's like a little bit overwhelming. And, and I think people will have to freeze the screen to, to, to look at that because really when we put it into perspective like that, it's, well, I'm just going to let you carry on, Cheryl. Um, I knew you would be dropping some... Um, dynamite information and i know that's not where it stops is it no i just i put all this together because i just wanted to remind people because we, we a lot of us have known this but you forget and then you see something on the telly and you start shouting out at it because you know they're they're not right um so moving on to the uh, next slide um again talking about it being novel and deadly question mark um Ion Aedis, who um, is a, a very uh, well-respected um, um, immunologist in uh, Stanford, he said Empiri empirically we had clear data from the Diamond Princess. So that was the cruise ship that got uh, grounded on February the 20th. Um, they wouldn't let them off the boat. Um, academically, we had flawed studies from Imperial College, and the question is how we ended up choosing one over the other, uh, uh, basically falling in a wave of madness. So. If you look at the Diamond Princess, um, 
there were about three and a half thousand people on board with all the people who worked on board and obviously as cruises go it's usually an older population um but basically um by april 2021 it's was showing um that it was 0.15 percent um fatality rate in that enclosed environment um and as i said hansard has now recorded the uk ifr as being 0.096 percent um what um professor neil ferguson wonderful neil ferguson did um do you know his computer program is now the basis of an A-level computer question? No way. And and let's let's remind ourselves. So you know you're being terribly polite there, um, Professor Neil Ferguson, Professor Lockdown. But of course, some viewers may know him as Professor Pants Down because um, he literally got caught with his pants down. And 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 of course, we know him too from uh, the burning of all the cattle in. Um, I mean. Let's let's not go back to 2000. Was it 2007? Um, yeah, I mean, his modelling that he's been wrong on from the list that I have goes back to 2001. And he's constantly been way out. He's constantly been proven wrong. Um, and he's still being used. Why? But there's a lot of money coming into Imperial College, isn't there? From, um, he's not even qualified. The... I think we've on the news run... Um, we, we've actually reported on, on Professor Neil Ferguson and actually his qualifications are, you know, like you say, who is he? But there's too yeah. many Imperial College connections there. And as we know, Imperial College have a huge um, number of uh, Chinese alumni. And Imperial College was actually the only place that President Xi visited, apart from going to have the state, the, the, the state parliament and state opening with the queen, not state opening, but the state visit with the queen. President Xi uh, went to Imperial. So we cannot rely on Professor, in inverted commas, Ferguson. No, but we did. Worldwide, he pr uh, predicted there were going to be 7 billion infections and 40 million deaths. And there's a little table there showing different countries and what he was um, saying was going to happen. <laughs> I like the Taiwan one, 212,000, he said, um, were going to die and they, they lost seven. <laughs> Um, so it's it's quite incredible that he's still being used, and um, yeah. So there's a couple of quotes there. Um, the one that I think I should emphasise is from a um, global leader um, in big data software, a company, um, the MD of that, and he they were saying that Neil Ferguson's Imperial model could be the most devastating software mistake of all time. And that is in terms of economic costs and lives lost. And isn't that just what we're seeing? But they said that in May 2020. Right, so um, moving on, um, safe and effective. Oh, yes. So this is the other thing that um, the MHRA is still saying about um, COVID-19 vaccines. Um, if we go back to the uh, ABPI, the Association of British Pharmaceutical Industries, um, the Code of Practice, I have a copy here. Okay. It's, big, it's getting thicker and thicker every time they produce one. So I've taken it from that. And um, Clause 6.1 um, says the absolute risk and relative risk. Um, this should um, We should refer only to relative risk, especially with regards to risk reduction. Um, it can make a medicine appear more effective than it actually is. In order to assess the clinical impact of an outcome, the reader also needs to know the absolute risk involved. In that regard, relative risk should never be referred to, as it has been, without also referring to the absolute risk, which hasn't been mentioned. So the absolute risk can be referred to in isolation. But of course, if you look across on that um, little yellow table, um, we've got what they told you, which was the relative risk reduction for Pfizer, Moderna, Janssen and AstraZeneca. Um, and we've got the absolute risk reduction. So Pfizer, which was 95%, relative risk reduction was only 0.84% when you rolled it out to a, a major population. Um, so they were overclaiming. So the efficacy of something is the ability to produce a desired or intended result. Yeah. Um, and what the marketing led us to believe was the exaggeration. And what we should have been told was the absolute risk reduction, which is true and relevant. Um, so that really great. Stuff. But don't forget, I've 
I've put a lot of people through this exam. There's a lot of the industry that's been through the code of practice. You go to the ABPI and you do courses in the code of practice, whichever part of the uh, pharma company you belong to. And everybody's been exposed to this, but nobody's taken any notice. And I know through you, we tried to get this queried and um, nobody responded at the ABPI. No, nobody did. And, you know, that brings me on to something else very quickly. And I don't want to interrupt your slideshow because I'm fascinated. But you've just said something about, you know, you train people, people, people know this is part of the training course. And that leads to my next point in that what we're seeing within the NHS and within the industry and Headley is seeing it within the manufacturing industry is that people are leaving the experienced people, the people that have probably been trained by you are leaving. But who are these people being replaced by? And is anyone taking any notice of the APBI? I mean, many of our viewers and listeners won't probably even know that the APBI exists. And then the second thing is, of course, talking about the word safe. So, and I had this drilled into me when I was a medical rep. So it must not be stated that a product has no adverse reactions, toxic hazard or risks of addiction or dependency. So the word safe must not be used without qualification. Okay. So... You know, even aspirin gives 10% of people a gut bleed. That's why they do protective coated um, aspirin. So everything has somebody who will have an idiosyncratic reaction to a drug. And that's why you can't categorically say something is safe. Um, and um, something like hydroxychloroquine, we had to go and see ophthalmologists, even though we were selling to rheumatologists, because it could have effects on the eyes. Which got me confused when they started talking about cardiovascular effects as a result of hydroxychloroquine because it was the eyes that it affected if you were long term and on higher doses. Um, so you had to kind of, it depends on how bad the side effect was, but you had to do something about trying to um, reduce the effects of that um, if you were aware of them. Um, and Alison Cave, who's the Chief Safety Officer of the MHRA, she said patient safety is our highest priority. The COVID-19 vaccines were approved after a rigorous review of safety, quality and effectiveness, which is obviously what we're trying to query at the moment. Um, and she also said it's an adverse drug reaction report um, associated with a fatal outcome does not mean that the vaccine caused the death. But how on earth do they know that? Because they haven't investigated the signals that they're getting. So that's uh, moving on then, um, number nine, um, we're analysing uh, here the number of MHA, MHRA yellow card reports. So they're supposed to be looking for signals. If you look at the ones that were received, um, this is adverse um, reactions that led to death from the COVID-19 vaccines. Um, in 2021, there were 1,932 uh, deaths reported on yellow card. And if you actually add up all the deaths that have been um, reported on yellow card from all vaccines over the 20 years from 2001, you get 404. And if that isn't a signal, I don't know what is. And of course, the other thing is, and we've talked about this, um, Debbie, it's happening all over the world. So every regulatory body is seeing the same thing. So it's not just little old England that's seeing this. We're, we're seeing it everywhere. So the VAERS is doing the same. So that um, uh, graph on the right, that shows all the deaths reported to bears by year from 1990. And obviously you get a, a spike when you get to 21 when the vaccines rolled out and 22. This is VAERS and the MHRA. And quite rightly, you've just said this is global. So if you, accumulate, if you add up all the numbers from um, uh, the deaths and, and reports from the EMA, from VAERS, from the MHRA, from Fiji Access, from the Canadian, I mean, all these different countries, they've all got different systems. So how do we keep track of everyone? And it doesn't seem, the figures don't seem to marry up at all. We seem to have got a huge underreporting. So where we're looking at, for example, 2,000 deaths, over 2,000 deaths in the yellow card data, really we're looking at a huge amount more. And then you've got all of these other countries working independently. So we've got no clue. Yeah of a cumulative yeah. global total. No, but you've got you've got uh, the main ones that you can have a look at, which we'll look at in two minutes, just to uh, give a plug for um, 
the yellow, uh, UK Columns Yellow Card Analysis, which has been brilliant because it's so difficult to understand what the um, government figures are all trying to tell you. Um, and at the moment, unfortunately, they've gone to monthly um, uh, declarations of, of adverse events um, rather than weekly. Um, and the last one came out on the 29th of September. And we're now at 2,272 deaths um, that people have registered um, after a vaccine. And the AstraZeneca total is 1,314. And um, the total reactions and the total fatalities for AstraZeneca represents about 58% of the total, which is why I put forward the FOM. If you go on to the next slide, that's showing uh, three. Um, official sets of figures from the UK, from the EU and from the US. Um, and if you tot all those up, um, this is to May 2022 since the um, uh, recording was, was uh, started um, at the beginning of 21. Um, then there's been 74,618 uh, deaths and 11,867 11,867,441 injuries. Um, if you look at Vigi Access, which is the um, WHO centre for drug monitoring, um, it represents supposedly, they're saying, 99% of the world population. But if you actually look at what they're saying, um, I saw that um, recently, um, up to May 2022, I can show that the um, adverse drug reactions on VG Access was 4,616,252. Well, that's a lot less than what we're getting from three countries, and yet they're saying that they represent 99% of the world population. Um, more difficult to get up-to-date death figures. It seemed to have disappeared from the charts when I looked the other day, so I could only get up to January 22, but again, showing a lot less than what we're actually showing just from three areas. So the UK, the EU and the US represents about 15% of the world population and the VIGI access is supposed to represent 99%. And yes, we're basically seeing three times more uh, deaths and injuries from 15% of the world population that we've seen from 99%. The 12th slide, um, basically the MHRA are not acknowledging or investigating severe adverse reactions and death. Um, but Obviously, the FDA and the EMA, who look after you, who look after Europe, they're operating in exactly the same way as the MHRA. It could be that they're all in cahoots. Um, so the pharmacovigilance is not working. Um, and um, they keep saying it's probably not down to the vaccine. <laughs> There's no evidence that it's the vaccine that's caused it. Um, and yet, if you had a test for COVID um, 28 days before, um, it was always down to COVID. It's, it just isn't logical or, or joined up. Um, if you get a new drug, you always do autopsies. You do autopsies um, if you've got a death um, from a, 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 that is related to a new uh, preparation, because obviously that's how we learn. Um, and you need to find out if it has actually caused the death and if it has, how it has, and whether it needs to be stopped or not. But the autopsies are not being done, and that's around the world as well. Um, and you know, are uh, the MHRA, are they seeing any autopsy reports that are being done? Uh, if they are, they're ignoring the signals that are coming from them. Why are the MHRA not responding to the red flags that were already showing in January 2021? Um, so we had Tess Laurie uh, write to the MHRA and the Prime Minister saying these vaccines are not fit for human purpose. Um, we've got Peter Doshi um, of the BMJ uh, at an FDA open public hearing, he stated that there are serious concerns over Pfizer trial data integrity and the lack of the FDA oversight. And the data integrity requires adequate regulatory oversight and trustworthy science requires data transparency. And then we've got Jessica Rose, who I think is brilliant. She's a very good one to watch. Um, she um, can prove causality um, via the nine aspects of the WHO acknowledge Bradford Hill criteria. So the WHO has always used the Bradford Hill criteria to prove causality. Um, and there are nine parts to that. Um, and according to Jessica Rose, we meet all nine parts. Um, so nine reasons for causality is met and actually proves that when you've only got to prove five of them, apparently, to actually get causation. Um, she also said... Um, 
And basically, by September 2021, due to the Bears reports that she's really analysed in some depth uh, and depths at this scale, that the COVID vaccines are the most dangerous ever to be developed. And, and you're going to go on now and show us a couple of um, shots with regards to COVID myths. And there are so many of them. I'm going to warn people now to they may might want to rewind or look again and freeze your screen to look at all of them but just run the run us through a couple of the COVID-19 myths Cheryl yeah yeah it's um this is taken from uh Nick Hudson's Pandata um so Panda is another um good forum to have a look at um they're always up to date and they um give some very accurate information um Another one that's been taken down quite a bit, of course, which proves that he's telling the truth. Um, the virus is new. Well, we've been through that. Um, everyone is susceptible, um, but we also know that we've got pre-existing immunity uh, is widespread. And obviously children are almost universally um, enjoying robust innate immunity to this. Um, the virus is deadly. A poll has shown that most people think it has an IFR. So that's an infection fatality rate of 20 to 38 percent. Yeah. I mean, my, my daughter was all for this to start off with. My daughter thought that they were going to be bringing carts down the roads and taking bodies away, you know, in the real plague. And when nothing happened, <laughs> um, we knew nobody who died. It, you know, it was she suddenly started thinking a little bit more about it herself. Um, so people have been absorbing mainstream media and the false information that's coming out to think that at least 30 percent of us are are um dropping dead um so we know that's not right lockdowns are effective at reducing deaths and now um i believe it's a lot more than 50 studies but there's definitely a lot of studies um that have shown that there's no benefit on mortality and if anything it makes it worse um because if you uh, factor in the collateral harms um it's a thing that we should never have done um, cloth masks um, are effective. Well, we've gone through that. We've shown you the diagram. Transmission is by droplets and fomites. So mass sensitizing, sanitizing, social distancing and perspex screens are effective. Um, most evidentiary support is for aerosol transmission as are the respiratory viruses. Um, and basically all the non-pharmaceutical interventions that as we've spent an absolute fortune on um, have no basis in the science. In fact, my local co-op has the screen still up and I asked them when they're taking it down because it's very difficult to pack your bags. And they came back to say they're going to stay up because it stops thieving. <laughs> so now they've found another use for them, you know. So, um, And then we've got um, asymptomatic transmission is a driver of the epidemic, which we know it's rarely involved in infection transmission. And then the PCR testing at high cycle thresholds, which is what they did. They were testing um, up to 41 uh, cycles. And every time you do a new cycle, you're actually doubling how much um, you're actually finding. And as Kerry Mullis, the inventor who got the Nobel Prize for it, actually stated, you can find anything with a PCR test. Even bits of dead virus that might have caused you an infection a long time ago, but your body hasn't actually cleared yet. Um, so basically, PCR testing is not competent for diagnosis. And I believe it actually says on the box, it's not for diagnostic purposes. And yet we've still been rolling them out. I'm just looking at, at the, um, the one of the reduce spread reduces death and reducing the spread by restricting the non-vulnerable shifts the disease burden onto the vulnerable, causing more to be struck down before endemicity is obtained i mean this is you know when you see it it's 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 a phenomenal um we're going to have to come back to talk about the freedom of information act and the work that you've done submitting this to to get details from astrazeneca but let's just carry on with the, i mean the deaths per million that have been recorded weekly for example that you've shown here. I mean, I think you've got a clip from the remnant as well, uh, the COVID-19 vaccines worldwide. I mean, that's pretty extraordinary. Run us through that. Um, so here, um, we're talking more about world data, as you said. Um, uh, the remnant um, was actually reporting on Japan, Japan dropping all vaccine mandates. 
because it now has uh, myocarditis um, on its label, a warning label. Um, and Japan seems to be looking at more data and evidence than most. It was the um, Japanese, I believed, who um, Byron Bridal asked um, or saw and uh, had to have a translation because it was in Japanese. They'd asked for um, the Pfizer um, distribution information to see where the actual vaccine went around the body. Um, and they'd asked for that. He got hold of it, and that's when we found out it was going everywhere. Um, the other thing that's extraordinary. That that is extraordinary because we're seeing, as we know, in the UK, well, pretty much everywhere. But I'm hearing of a lot more increases of myocarditis. So the fact that Japan has dropped all vaccine mandates and has actually placed myocarditis on the label is extraordinary. I mean, how many people in the UK actually know that? Are we, is anybody aware of that? And if that's happening in Japan, why is it not happening here? Well, there's been a, a concerted campaign to come up with all sorts of excuses as to why young people are dropping down. Um, they're not actually looking at the most obvious thing. Sometimes they'll say in an article, but it won't be the vaccine. They don't know what it is, but it won't be the vaccine. Um, and I just find that, like you say, extraordinary. Um, and mainstream media are doing a lot of damage. Um, they're not telling people the truth. I mean, if you look at the countries that um, haven't had um, much vaccination, like India and Africa, who did um, control a lot of their COVID with ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, um, then if you look at that top left um uh, graph, you can see that India and Africa are at the bottom in terms of deaths per million. Um, and Israel shot up um, when they introduced their fourth vaccine. Um, it was an incredible um, spike that they got. Um, we've got to ask questions about how many vaccines have been ordered per person. Um, Canada has ordered 11 vaccines per person. We've ordered 9.5. So the plan was to keep this going. And you're actually those, if it's all the same vaccine that we started with, it's against a, a variant that's not with us anymore. It just doesn't make sense. It's just money that's been wasted. And let's remind um, viewers too and listeners that Israel were only rolling out Pfizer. So it was the only country that exclusively rolled out Pfizer. And let's also remind people that this injection is a black triangle medication. So therefore, it needs to have increased pharmacovigilance, doesn't it? I mean, black triangle, everyone seems to forget that this is a black triangle medicine. Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, don't forget that the Indian authorities, um, I hope, hold out a lot of hope for India because their judiciary is doing quite a lot of uh, work against what's gone on as well. Uh, they're still functioning. Um, you can either lose 1.38 billion customers or allow an independent investigation to determine whether your product is safe and provides immunity, is what the Indian authorities said. And Pfizer came back and said, we'd rather give up 1.38 billion customers, a bit like they didn't want the Pfizer data to be released for 75 years. Um, rather than get into trouble, they're just withdrawing and losing all those customers, um, which must mean they know. How does this compare with the unvaccinated? So we've got, um, of course, there was a lot of publicity saying that everybody in hospital was the unvaccinated, everybody who was dying was the unvaccinated. And of course, once you get the um, UK HSA information, um, we could show that that wasn't true. So uh, the green uh, represents the uh, not vaccinated people, the unvaccinated, shall we say and the uh, red, the vaccinated. Um, so that's showing the number of cases, um, the number of hospitalizations, and the number of deaths. And as Ivor Cummings said, this was a, a case-demic <laughs> because it was cases, it wasn't, wasn't confirmed infection. They passed a test, a test that wasn't very good, and became a case. Um, but you can see that uh, most of the problem is in the vaccinated because it hasn't been effective and it hasn't stopped them getting infected. And as we now know, transmitting, passing it on. Um, so in terms of refusal, there's lots of people who um, 
started looking at how many people have actually been vaccinated because it didn't seem to uh, match with what the government was saying at one stage. Um, and on this one, in terms of um, three doses, um, by the time you get to the third dose, so you've had one and two and this would be your booster, um, nearly 31 million had refused to take it, um, which means it's about 50-50. Um, but of course, you've got to add those then to the people um, who've never had it at all, um, which would be the 19 million there. If they've only, if somebody's had two doses, for example, hasn't had the third, they are now regarded as unvaccinated because they're not, they haven't had the booster or they haven't had the third dose. So even people that have had double jabs are considered unvaccinated if they haven't gone forward with the full course. Yeah, and obviously the, the new bivalent one is for the old original Delta variant, which is gone, um, and for an Omicron variant that's probably on its way. So it's, it's a complete waste of time. And it's, the effects seem to be cumulative. So the more you put in, the more chance you have of getting a, an effect, a side effect, should I say. So let's end so, on some really important facts that you've got, because I think the facts, you know, when you actually get to facts that people can repeat to other people and that they can say, these are very useful. And I know you've gone into a lot of work to see where the facts, what the facts are and what the evidence is to back those up. So let's end this today, Cheryl, on what people can actually learn from this and know as factual, as factual as, as you're telling us anyway. I'm sure the fact checkers will have something to say about this, but um, these are the facts as, as you found them. Well, most of this is government data. It's not been made up. It's, it's, it's taken off ONS and, um, for example, if you look at um, the number of people who actually um, have died of COVID and only COVID, so on their death certificate, it only mentions COVID and no underlying diseases, by December 21, it was 6,183. And that's ONS data. We must remember that the fact checkers, they even um fact check government data and uh they call that out as well so you know whatever you throw out the fact checkers will always find a way to dismiss it or completely you know nothing to nothing to see here kind of thing but these i mean if we go to is it what slide are we on now um your covid19 facts i mean these are quite extraordinary can you read out a couple of those cheryl your COVID-19 facts, I mean, 20% of people with myocarditis die within one year, 50% die within five years. These are very worrying statistics um, yeah. and they haven't changed in a very long time, have they? No, no, no. And, and when originally people started reporting myocarditis, there were a lot of medics saying, oh, it's transient, it's transient. And it's, you know, if you, your heart doesn't regenerate itself. So if you've done any damage to any heart muscle, any heart tissue, it's not going to grow new tissue. It fibroses and it, it, it becomes a problem. It means it can't contract anymore. And that means it's less efficient. And, you know, when you have a heart attack, you stop your blood supply to a portion of your heart muscle and it dies. It can't replace itself. And myocarditis is the same. It's done damage to the heart muscle. And to do that to a younger person, who has a lot of years ahead of them, and it means that they can't do anything with exertion anymore. They have to really be careful because the heart isn't up to it. But it's, it's telling the public the truth, isn't it? And I don't understand medics who are not understanding, you know, what myocarditis is about. We, we know this. We know it. What is it you found out about... Um, because we, we, we need to make it clear, too, that there are two forms of myocarditis. There's a myocarditis and there's also what's called a vaccine-induced myocarditis or myocarditis following vaccination. And they're slightly different and they can produce slightly different symptoms and have different um, prognosis. But you've also been noticing some interesting statistics with regards to life insurance, which I'm very interested yeah. to look at. Yeah, I mean, this is from um, uh, Ed Dowd, 
um, started this off. So he was a BlackRock person a long time ago. Um, and he has just been stunned by the um, rise in the number of life insurance claims. Because, of course, if you're talking about life insurance claims, you're talking about the working population. So you're talking about 18 to 64-year-olds. And um, they have had a 40% uh, spike in death and disability claims um, in uh, the middle part of 2021, when that age group had vaccines rolled out. And what they say is that a 10% increase would be historic. It'd be a one in a 200-year event. It'd be something that you hardly ever see. But we're talking about a 40%, and that is four times what would be extraordinary. And we're talking about four times and nobody's saying anything. And that's what's got to be looked at now. It's the excess deaths that we're getting, uh, which is happening in this country as well. But it's not just excess deaths across the board. It's in the younger age group. Just explain what, you, what you've put on the left-hand side of, of that screen with regards to JFK and his interview, because this is very worrying because this implicates children and it shows a motive for the way forward for pharmaceutical companies and how they've got away with with all of yeah. this. Explain to us what, what JFK was saying there. Yeah, I mean, he said that some time ago, and of course this has now happened, they're rolling it out um, uh, to children. So um, he said that once they get approved, uh, now you can sue them. So once they get a badge on them, um, you can actually uh, sue them unless they can get it recommended for children. Um, and all vaccines are officially recommended for children so that the manufacturer gets liability protection. Um, and that's why they're going after the kids, he said then. And now they've gone after them. And I can't believe it that they voted um, for it to be included on the school schedules um, by 15 to nil. Nobody even had any queries on it. I think this is really, really important, like super important, because I hadn't really processed the information. But as you rightly said, we're looking at rolling out a jab for children, um, babies six months from Christmas, possibly. UK um, HSA and MHRA are looking into approving it. Now explain to us, because this is really important. There's a big difference, isn't there? Because bearing in mind we're thinking about rolling Moderna out, what's the difference in paediatric dosage and in general adult dosage between Moderna and Pfizer? Because this is shocking. Basically, there was um, a, a chemist, I think it was, on um, at the Corona Investigative Committee, who I heard this from originally, and she was talking about um, looking at the different dosages that Pfizer tested. So they tested 10 micrograms, 20 micrograms, and 30 micrograms, and they found out that they got more side effects with the 30 micrograms, surprisingly enough. Well, they decided to leave it at 30 micrograms because there's more in the product, you can charge more for it. And then um, when you got to Moderna, Moderna were using 100 micrograms. So they were using over three times what the Pfizer dose was, um, which seemed quite incredible to me. Um, and if you're talking about half dosage of Moderna, then that gives it 50 micrograms of spike, which, which is more than you get in the full adult dose of Pfizer. I don't know what to so, say. <laughs> I, I well, it, honestly just, don't know what to say. That's three times overdose from one product to another. Don't forget, it's it's been rolled out into centres with very scantily trained vaccinators who have to stick a needle into a vial that has four dose, uh, five doses in it. And I've even read that some people take six doses out. Um, it's all, I mean, if you talk to Headley Reese as you have done, it's all against any safety regulations that are a part of the industry. Um, We've just seen a pop-up clinic in Southampton overdosing children. I mean, children, yeah. children shouldn't be vaccinated anyway. End of, full stop. They don't need the COVID-19, they don't want it, they shouldn't be having it. And yet we've got a pop-up clinic in Southampton that has just admitted to overdosing 36 children. Yeah. So we know that this is going on and this is the big message for parents and well for everybody that's, that's, that's got children in their family. Please keep an eye on what is going on because this is seriously dangerous. I want to just very quickly just finish this session, um, Cheryl, 
with the conclusions because they are pretty stark. So if you could just read us out your conclusions in that big yellow box there, I think that that's a really apt place for us to finish today. And then we can speak next time about what you're doing today to get the information from Pascal Soirot. And by then we should know if your application for FOI has been successful. So let's just finish on your absolute conclusions because they're pretty shocking. Well, yeah, I mean, these aren't mine. These are Peter McCulloch's. I wouldn't claim <laughs> to know as much no. as him. Uh, and of course, he's just been uh, struck off from many different places. Um, and he's been fighting this for two years. And I've never known anybody that can cite so many papers. Um, he seems to have such an encyclopedic knowledge of all the information and where it's come from. And he doesn't say anything without being able to back it up um, from where it came. So he basically concludes that the pandemic is a global disaster, that the pathophysiology is complex and it's not amenable to a single drug. So all these protocols that people um, have been putting together are a whole gamut of, of different treatment. The pre-hospital phase is the therapeutic opportunity. So instead of waiting until people can't breathe, we're supposed to be treating people before they get to hospital. Um, as soon as they present, it's best to treat them then. Early ambulatory um, um, therapy with a sequence multidrug regimen is supported by available sources of evidence and has a positive benefit to risk profile. Um, and this will go on to reduce the risk of hospitalisation and death um, and more safety um, temporised to close the crisis with herd immunity, um, which everybody stopped talking about, haven't they? COVID-19 uh, genetic vaccines have got an unfavourable, he calls it, safety profile uh, and protection is not sufficiently complete or durable. And basically, um, the censorship and reprisal are working to crush freedom of speech, scientific discourse and medical progress. We've come full circle because actually, you know, we started off this conversation with saying that after thalidomide, was it 500 cases, the drug was stopped. You know, all of these drugs that have caused serious adverse reactions have been stopped immediately. And here we are, nearly three years down the line, nothing's been stopped, nothing's being investigated, no one's answering any questions, and still we have thousands, millions of vaccine-injured people without help. Cheryl, what's your final message today um, to people watching this? I think more and more people are waking up. Um, I think more and more people are realising the truth. I think you can tell that by less people having the vaccines. Um, and I'm ever hopeful that we will get more people, enough people, to start demanding um, that something is done to stop these vaccinations. Um, I have to believe that. And I too believe that. And I'd like to thank you so much and to all of our UK column viewers and listeners who are working so diligently behind the scenes because honestly Cheryl has put in millions zillions of hours work into this and we're going to come on to see the results of this work that Cheryl's been putting in so Cheryl thank you so much for coming out of the shadows bye-bye everyone and um, we'll see you soon Cheryl for the second time for the Freedom of Information Act that you've submitted to AstraZeneca thank you very much indeed for watching